passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull those out and follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, there are some blue Bibles in the baskets that are in front of you. Please take one. If you take it home with you, we want you to be well equipped. I want to mention as you're looking for this passage, a couple of things, actually. Uh, number one, I wanted to mention that um, there's a, a at City Church, we have a lot of what we would what we would call church friends, people in this community, churches in this community that we love dearly and um, spend time with, and we know their staff, and they know us. So uh, Alex Farmer, who is uh, who was the rector of Servants of Christ Anglican until yesterday, I guess technically, uh, Alex Farmer, so that's an Anglican church, became the bishop of the Gulf Atlantic Diocese yesterday at a just unbelievable service at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Tallahassee. I was there as one of the most remarkable things that I've seen. So just praise God for raising up Alex Farmer and putting him in this role. It's a really big deal. Uh, and I, one of the reasons I want to mention that is at City Church, we re- our heart, especially if you're, if you're a student and you're just getting into Gainesville, our heart is that you would find a faithful church somewhere and get involved and, and get engaged with that community, that you would find a place. If it's City Church, praise God, we would love to have you. But there are so many beautiful, faithful churches in this city. And we would love to see you be engaged somewhere that you might grow and become more like Jesus, experience transformation. So I just think that's really important to understand that we are just not the only show in town here, folks. There are a lot of people doing faithful work, and I hope that you will get involved. And I wanted to show honor to, to Alex Farmer, and please be praying for him as he shepherds now people all over the state of Florida uh, for the glory of God. This morning we're beginning a series, again, that will take us through the book of Jonah, uh, as you might already know, the book of Jonah is a great big story about a great big whale. So those of you who love uh, mammals, marine mammals in particular, are in for a really swell time. Do you get that? Um, if you love sea creatures, we're going to love this series. My son loves sharks, and so he's going to have a blast. Actually, if you look at this text very carefully, this isn't a story about a whale. It's a story about a fish. That's an important clarification. It's actually not a story about a fish. It's a story about God. Not about a whale, not about a fish. It's a story about God. In light of our theme this year, our focus on transformation that we discussed in detail last Sunday, I do hope if you weren't able to be here that you listened through that because it sets the stage for kind of where we're going this year as a church family. In light of our focus this year on transformation, I want to mention that we are studying Jonah because of what it teaches us about the nature of and the character of the God who transforms us, especially God's compassion and God's faithfulness. It's only four chapters, but it is outrageously dense and profound, and so we will do what we can on Sunday mornings to unpack it, and then you can keep studying it on your own. And as I saw one other uh, other author put it, let's not be unduly distracted by the fish. It's about God. It's about his merciful and compassionate character. So here's our scripture passage, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Jonah's right between Obadiah and Micah, which I understand might not do a whole lot for you, uh, but if you have one of those blue Bibles, it's on page 861. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Actually, we're going to try, we're going to add something this morning. At the end of this passage, I will say, Uh, This is the word of the Lord, and then you will say, thanks be to God, okay? So we're going to try that. Get ready for it. It's coming. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have gathered us once again in your providence, that we might not just hear your word, but actually um, understand it and be changed for it. We're praying this year for transformation, that we might become more like you. Use these precious minutes, Lord, to increase our affections for you. And I pray that we would leave here different people, even if it's just by a little bit, that you would move that needle. And Father, for those who are, who are here and who are exploring Christianity, or maybe, frankly, we're kind of dragged here this morning, I pray that you would minister to them in particular, that you would reveal something about your character, your, your graciousness, and your compassion. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I happen to like running, especially trail running, quite a lot. And I understand that this is an evocative statement. Those of you who are runners will probably agree with me here rather strongly because runners are proud of their running, and they therefore need to remain convinced at all times that they, in fact, like it. It's very important. In fact, the reason that runners put those little mileage stickers on the back of their Subarus, it's not so much to brag, I mean they are doing that, but actually it's to remind themselves that they have these wonderful accomplishments to show for their running and therefore must really like it and should keep doing it. Those of you who are not runners will likely disagree rather strongly with my statement about liking running because that's why you don't run. Right? It's not so much that you don't have time for it, it's not so much that you don't understand the health benefits, you just hate it. I will say that running can be complicated even for those of us who actually do like it. If you're new at City Church, you're like, oh, this guy's name is Chipper. I've never even heard that name in my entire life. It gets even better. My given name is actually Forrest. So I have been dealing with the whole run, Forrest, run joke since the movie Forrest Gump came out in 1994. So we're getting close to celebrating 30 years together, praise God. 
But I get it. That particular joke is just so good that the humor is inexhaustible. Here's the thing, though. Regardless of how you feel about running, we are actually all runners. We're all runners. We are all running somewhere toward whatever we think will bring us happiness or peace. So when it comes to life, you could say that couch potatoes don't really exist. It, might, it sounds cool to say that we're detached, that we're a little bit apathetic, you know, we're just kind of vibing. Yeah, we don't, we don't really care. That's actually more of a mirage than we might think. We're all running somewhere. Two questions this morning as we learn more about Jonah and his inaugural response to the Lord's call. Two questions. Number one, why are you running? And then number two, where exactly are you going? Why are you running and where are you going? We'll start with that first question. Why are you running? Jonah was an Israelite or Hebrew prophet who prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. By Jonah's day, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam II ruled the northern kingdom from 782 to 753 B.C. According to the very short account that we have of Jonah's prophetic ministry in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, Jonah had a really sweet gig. The gist of Jonah's prophetic message from the Lord to Jeroboam was, you will successfully expand the borders of your kingdom. How, if there is a top ten list of things a king wants to hear from a prophet, that is number one. Every king wants to hear that. If you are a prophet and you are looking to secure one of those long-term contracts, those, those ten-year, $400 million things that professional athletes are getting these days, this is the kind of thing that you prophesy to a king. You go to the king and say, hey, I have one, another one of those great prophecies again for you. And then, even better, it's one thing to prophesy, it's another thing for it to actually happen. Even better, Jonah's prophecy was right on target. Jeroboam did expand the boundaries of the northern kingdom, which is a remarkably gracious provision from the Lord when you consider that King Jeroboam II was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. Jeroboam's grandfather, King Jehoahaz, did at least as much evil as Jeroboam, maybe more. And accordingly, in Jehoahaz's day, the Lord allowed the Arameans, called the Syrians actually in the translation we use at, at City Church, it's kind of a, a complicated matter, but the Lord allowed the Arameans to oppress the northern kingdom on account of Jehoahaz's sin and take some of their towns. But the Lord did not permit the Arameans to destroy them completely, and then King Joash, that is Jeroboam's dad, actually started to repossess some territory despite his own evil deeds. And then Jeroboam repossessed even more territory than his dad did, despite his own evil deeds. Why? 
Check out this beautiful passage in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. I'll read it to you. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. The Lord preserved Israel despite Jeroboam's evil because the Lord had made promises to Israel and he is a faithful and compassionate God. Do you see this? This is a stunning view of God's character. And we haven't even gotten started. This is just for free. Now, as, as evil, as all of this evil was, and it included all kinds of pretty hideous idolatry often associated with, with Canaanite Asherah poles, as evil as all of this evil was, there were some folks doing even more evil, if you can believe it. The Ninevites, who lived in the great Assyrian city of Nineveh, were very well known for extreme violence, often involving torture against men, women, children, you name it, which was mixed into their pagan religion. In fact, the Ninevites were so evil that, uh, you can see this in Jonah chapter 1 at the end of verse 2, their evil came up before the Lord, like the foulest smelling stench. That's how evil they were. It was coming up before the Lord, and it stank. When evil like this comes up before the Lord, God typically comes down upon such people in judgment. A just response, I hope we can all appreciate, at least in this case, given the extent of Ninevite wickedness, passivity, and the presence of of evil isn't a very compelling attribute, especially not for the God of the universe. However, earlier in verse 2, we get this really unexpected twist. Instead of immediately coming down in judgment, the Lord told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And then Jonah, you know, being a righteous prophet of the Lord, valiantly responded to God, saying, sounds great, even if my life should be required of me as I prophesy to this notoriously violent people, I will go and do the Lord's bidding. I trust you, God. Send me. No, that's not what happened at all. Jonah got up all right. He arose. But instead of going to Nineveh, he, this is verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh was just over 500 miles northeast of the northern kingdom. And if you're having trouble with that geographically, we're talking 200 miles or so north of Baghdad. And then Tarshish was somewhere along the western Mediterranean Sea. So by fleeing, Jonah was traveling in precisely the opposite direction of where God told him to go. 
the direction of travel for Jonah could not have been more opposed to God's instruction. Why was Jonah, of all, I mean, he's, he's a prophet of God. Why was Jonah running away from God? There's a lot of reasons here. Some of them will become more clear as we go through this series. But I want to point out two of them. Number one, he was afraid. Fear. Previously, Jonah was enjoying the best possible gig. He was, he was speaking sweet political nothings into the ear of the king. I mean, he was doing other things, but he was, he was doing that. And, and now God is giving him what would have felt like the worst possible. I mean, so that's the best assignment. This is the worst assignment. It is on the other end of the spectrum, prophesying judgment to Israel's violent pagan enemies who are known for torture. It's like walking up by yourself to the playground bullies at recess, you know, and saying, you know, you sinners, the, the judgment of God is upon you. <laughs> Not very smart. At, at the very least, Jonah's assignment was going to be physically and emotionally rigorous. I mean, he had to go 500 miles up to Nineveh, and it was probably going to involve rejection at the end of it, and, and a violent death was, was more than plausible, was maybe even likely. And if somehow the Ninevites did repent, let's be honest with ourselves, it's not always easy to want your enemies experience redemption, now is it? In theory, Jonah should have been trusting God, but he was afraid, and he frankly didn't think that God's plan was a very good one. And this is really important. Very often, we don't know how we are doing spiritually until God calls us to do something that doesn't feel right to us. Maybe something that doesn't feel fair. Something that, that threatens our status quo. First reason is fear. Second reason is pride. This becomes more apparent as the book goes on. You can see some, some hints, at least some faint hints of it. Particularly in verses 8 and 9. After the tempest threatened the boat, and the mariners discerned that Jonah was to blame, they asked him a series of questions. They, they peppered him with questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what, of what people are you? Help us figure this out, man. And, and Jonah responded by announcing his ethno-religious identity. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea in the dry land. So in some ways, this is a perfectly fine response. There's even some boldness here. He's declaring his allegiance to Yahweh, whom he describes as the God of heaven, in other words, as the God above any and all other gods, including the various gods that the mariners had called out to in verse 5. So there's some boldness here. I, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I, I serve as the one true God. But there are also some, some faint hints here of, as we'll see as the book goes on, of, of some ethnocentrism. You can see this in the way that he really only responds to one of their questions and, and the last one at that. And, it, and all of this suggests, as the narrative will continue to reveal, that Jonah w was somewhat spiritually self-assured. Maybe the prophet thing had, had gone to his head a little bit, especially given how well-received 
he must have been at home. I'm a pretty good prophet, prophesying pretty good things. And he was dealing with a little bit of prejudice, especially against his non-Israelite neighbors like the Assyrians. If we're being honest, we can see ourselves in Jonah, can't we? Maybe we sense that we, we might be runners too. For professing Christians, those of us who are here that would say that we are followers of Jesus, running from God, it very often looks like, it looks like disobedience. Maybe, maybe targeted disobedience in areas of our lives where, where God's ideas and God's wisdom just do not make sense to us and confront things that we hold quite dearly. We're fine with what he says over here, but in this area, mm, I don't know. And for those of us who would not profess to be Christians, running from God often looks more like wholesale unbelief and rejection of God. And you know, when we are running from God, we come up with all of these very sophisticated reasons for doing so. We, well, first of all, we might deny that we're running at all. You know, it, Instead, we've, we've staked out some neutral territory for ourselves. We're, we're actually just very open-minded. We're just kind of non-committal people. We're very flexible. That's very much in line with the, with the values of our day. So we might say, we're not really running. We're just, we're just open. You know, we, we don't want to be too nailed down. Or, or we might speak of our running as kind of a, a necessary deconstruction. You know, we might say that, that we're clearing away the dross in search of a more pure faith that often ends up being more culturally hospitable. Or we might cite, and understandably so, and you can see good reasons for these things, by the way. We might cite some intellectual or emotional objections we have concerning our faith, maybe related to suffering, you know, maybe related to the reliability of scripture. There's a lot of options here, and they make sense. They're understandable. But the book of Jonah, here's what it does. It confronts us with less sophisticated reasons for our running, namely fear and pride. The biblical witness is this. We tend to run from God because we are afraid that maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. And we tend to run from God because we pridefully believe that we know better than he does, that we have better ideas than he has, that we have more insight into things than he has. And maybe we wouldn't say these things out loud, but biblically speaking, these are the primary whys. And they have been since the Garden of Eden. In our, in our natural estate, Every one of us has this, this unquenchable thirst to be like God and to trust in ourselves as opposed to trusting God because there isn't anybody like him. Two options. We try to be like God and we trust in ourselves or we trust in God because we understand that there is not anybody like him. And here's, here's what might be the most concerning thing about this running. Very, very often, this kind of running will feel right. It really will seem like 
the planets are, are, are aligning and, and we're on the right track. Colin Smith, he's a, he's a pastor and an author, he points out, think about this, when Jonah got to Joppa, there was indeed a boat there to take him to Tarshish. He found exactly what he was looking for. So Jonah actually had very good emotional and circumstantial reasons to believe that he made the right choice. Behold a boat. Look at this. I, I got to be on the right track. Everything is just, it's just coming together. But circumstances mislead us when we are untethered from God's word and God's plan. When we are running from God, coincidences mixed with our desires and our emotions give us false confidence that we're making the right call and being true to ourselves and so forth. Today would be a really good day for us to consider the real reason we might be running from God. As uncomfortable as they might be, keeping in mind that circumstances and feelings are less reliable guides than we think they are. Untethered from God's word, they will mislead us. In just a moment, we'll take a more in-depth look at at the urgency of asking this question, dealing with this question. So for now, I just want to simply say this. When Jesus' followers are on the run from God, which again, it often looks like stubborn disobedience, maybe just in one or two areas of our lives, here's what's happening. We're actually sabotaging the transformative work that God wants to do in us. Consider, and this is really important for understanding and unlocking the book of Jonah. Why did God call Jonah? God called Jonah to go to Nineveh mainly because of what God wanted to teach Jonah and what God wanted to do in Jonah. God did, he didn't need Jonah to go to the Ninevites. He, he could have reached the Ninevites. He could have, he could have made his way to the Ninevites in, in whatever kind of way. God called Jonah to go to the Ninevites because of the transformative work he wanted to do in Jonah. To shape him, to change him, to transform him. So on one hand, this is a little bit alarming because we understand that when we're running from God, we're actually missing out on the transformative things that God wants to do in us, the ways that he wants to shape us. So it is alarming. But I gotta say, this is an outrageously encouraging consideration for those of us who repent and change course and start running to the Lord in faith. Who, who knows what, what the earthly outcomes of our obedience might be? But we can be certain that God will accomplish his transformative purposes in us as he uses us. You see this, your, your, your faithfulness might not always appear to be fruitful, and the wicked might seem to be very prosperous. You see that refrain over and over again in the Psalms. But followers of Jesus, when we are running to the Lord in obedience, can always be certain that God's work in us is going exactly according to plan. And your time is never wasted. That is, I mean, that is incredibly refreshing, and it's a distinctly Christian posture. Increasingly these days, it's all about results, results, results. Christianity is about faithfulness. And in the midst of being faithful, we know that God is at work in us, and he's changing us. Our time is never wasted. There's more to be said 
though, about investigating our reasons for running, namely because our running always takes us somewhere. Our running is always consequential. That brings us to our second question. Where are you going? The book of Jonah is a magnificent piece of Hebrew literature. Some of which, the magnificence that is, it comes through in our English Bibles, some of which does not. You kind of have to root it out a little bit. You have to hunt for it and, and, and reveal it, and we'll try to do that in the coming weeks. But one of the literary conventions that does come through here in Jonah chapter 1 and then into chapter 2 is this progressive and increasingly dramatic use of the word down. Chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And this is verses 4 and 5. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, wait for it, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Notice that, that each time Jonah goes down, it's even more down than before. First he goes down to Joppa. And then when he's in Joppa, he, he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the inner part of the ship. We're going down. And of course, if you're familiar with this great big story about a great big whale, you know that eventually Jonah goes down into the water itself ultimately into the belly of a fish, which then goes down. I, I frame this, where are you going business, as a, as a reflective question. But it turns out that the text itself, it actually steps in and it gives us a really honest answer. If you're running from God, you're going down. It's humorous putting it that way since going down has become an idiom in our day. You're running from God, you're going down. But in reality, there's actually nothing humorous about it at all. Running from God takes us down into the depths. Hurtling towards death unless there's some kind of intervention outside of ourselves. The running that can feel so exhilarating, the running that can feel so right in the end, it leads to disaster. And by the way, it doesn't just affect you. It causes harm to those around you as well. You know, our ethics these days are sort of like, well, if, if, it's, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. But check this out. Notice the nature of the plea the captain makes to Jonah, followed by the conversations that the mariners have with one another. And I'm looking here at verses 6 and 7. The captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Like, what are, you do, what are you doing? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we 
may not perish. You see what's happening. Jonah's actions are now affecting the mariners, and they're in danger of perishing. In verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah's evil had come upon us. The horizontal impacts of our running are always worse than we'd imagine, not better. Bad news. The horizontal impacts of our running from God are always worse than we imagine, not better. They're the cause of all kinds of evil and oppression and injustice that affect all kinds of people around us. Running from God, which is an inherently self-oriented posture, we were just talking about this, it harms other people. Okay, ready for some way better news? Finally, my goodness. We've been going down, right? So something here. Those of us who are God's people, who have, who have repented of their sin and have put their hope in the Son and fear the Lord, more on that next week, we actually can't escape God's presence. Those of us who are the children of God, we cannot escape God's presence. At times we might try really, really hard, just as Jonah did. Verse 3, Jonah rose to Tarshish, rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And then verse 3 again, so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go within the Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to Jonah, what is this thing that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He wasn't just like doing this in theory. He was telling people, hey, I'm, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I'm trying to get away. But our merciful and compassionate God just keeps coming after his people again and again and again, just like he comes after Jonah. You might get real close to the bottom, and we'll see just how close Jonah got in a couple of weeks. But here's the thing. For the people of God, God will be there to bring you back up. Because God never gives up on his people. By grace, he brings us into his family. And by grace, he faithfully stays with us. As I saw one author put this, the Lord has more ways of confronting us than we have ways of evading him. He keeps coming and coming and coming for his people. So here's, here's what I propose. Why not mitigate further distress, O people of God? Why not guard against further descent into the abyss by, by turning around now? Why not mitigate further distress by turning around now? Why not get on board with God's plan and run toward him, even if doing so might feel really uncomfortable? It just, it just doesn't feel right. And, and by the way, faith. We, you know, as Christians, we throw around this word faith. You've got to have faith. We're, we're people of faith, 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 faith. It's kind of lingo. Faith in, this, in, in Scripture should not be thought of as blind leaps that are, that are bound up in our circumstances. You know, we might say things like, I'm going I'm to eat this Big Mac in faith, okay? That's not faith. That's risk. Faith is essentially doing what God says regardless of how we feel about it. It's obedience in all areas of our lives, 
because we trust the God of heaven. You know, a lot of times as, as followers of Jesus, we're saying, I wish, gosh, I, I wish I knew God's will. I really want to know. We're praying, God, show me your will, show me your will. I get it. There's circumstantial things. We're looking for guidance. But guess what? God has shown us his will in the Bible. And faith means taking him at his word and walking with him in obedience regardless of how we feel about it. Those of us who are here this morning and, and you wouldn't say that you're God's people. You, you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here investigating Christianity or, or someone dragged you in here or this is downtown, so who knows? You were looking for coffee and you found coffee, but then this was unexpected, right? This whole thing we're, we're doing here. Here's what I want you to know this morning. And again, we'll unpack this as we go throughout this series. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, is better than Jonah in every way. So much so that he actually made a way for people like you to become part of God's kingdom family. Seriously. We'll unpack this in detail again throughout our series. So for today, I just, I just want to say this one thing today. Jesus ran toward his enemies. Jesus ran toward his enemies, facing certain death that his enemies might have life. That's the Christian narrative. Jesus ran toward his enemies, facing certain death. His enemies might have life. Jonah, went, he ran away from his enemies, trying to escape death and kind of disinterested in the plight of his enemies, frankly hoping for their demise, as we will see in very clear detail, especially in chapters 3 and 4. He was hoping that they'd get wiped out. But Jesus ran toward his enemies at the cost of his life that they might repent and have life. So here's the thing. It's, again, it's kind of funny saying this, but it's, it's not funny. If you're running from God, you're going down, literally. And that's what Jonah is telling us in part. But even this morning, you can repent. And you can put your hope in Jesus. And you can have life everlasting. You can be assured that you will be forevermore in the presence of God. There will be peaks and valleys. But even in those moments when you feel yourself running away from God, he will come for you and he will come for you. He will come for you again and he will lift you up out of the depths. And one day when Christ returns, you will be lifted up with him into this new and perfect city and be with him forevermore. Worshiping with the people of God. Worshiping, you know what? Check this out. Worshiping, I would assume, even with some of these people from Nineveh, these violent murderers, torturers. That's how wild Christianity is. I said this a couple of weeks. I'll just end with this consideration. This is how crazy Christianity is, right? You, you go and, and you worship God with people who are, who are formerly your enemies, people that maybe you've been persecuted, I'll end with this. The Apostle Paul, who, is, who famously murdered people who followed Jesus before he became a Christian, Paul will essentially enter the gates of heaven to the applause of the people he murdered. So we will be lifted up out of the depths and worship in the presence of God forevermore. And all suffering and all mourning and all sin will be gone. Amen.